It is good to finally be here. We do not have to go back. We moved up. No more trips back to Guelph. Uh, we're here to stay. So we were just talking about the sermon series actually before I came up here, and uh, and how long the, we've talked about how long you know people have, have preached here before. And I had started one series that was going to be on various characteristics of Christ, His compassion and His um, grace and His um, uh, faithfulness and all these other things. And then I switched it to the church, which is going to be now. Uh, and then I realized we could just put in the bulletin, we're starting a 20-year series on the Bible. <laughs> so for the next 20 years, I'm going to be preaching on the Bible. Every Sunday, you can come and find out what it is. Um, but thank you, everyone, for your uh, help and uh, for your uh, assistance in getting us moved in. And we've had food dropped off, and we've had texts and phone calls and uh, it's just been fantastic, and uh, so uh, we've got our fridge full of desserts and uh, our house full of boxes at the moment, but uh, we're going to get unpacked, we're going to get settled in, and it'll be fantastic. But uh, the series that we are beginning, uh, apart from the Bible, which will always be the series, uh, is loving the church and, and God's desire for the church. Uh, the series is God's desire for the church, and today we're talking about loving the church. And uh, so we're going to be talking about worshiping, praying, expressing spiritual gifts, uh, the compassionate church, the faithful church, um, hospitality, generosity, a whole bunch of things that God's heart is for the church, uh, that the church is God's plan. It's plan A. There is no other plan after A, just A, us. And, uh, and so we're going to look at the church and what we're about. So to start this morning, I'll just open up in a word of prayer. Father God. We just thank you for uh, your presence here among us. We thank you for your word, uh, which we look into, uh, that guides our life, uh, that reveals yourself to us, uh, that builds our relationship with you, uh, that replaces our error with your truth, uh, that uh, replaces our foolishness with your wisdom. And so, Father, today, as we open up your word, we just pray that you would bless it and uh, your Holy Spirit would fix in our hearts uh, the things that you would have us learn. In Christ's name, amen. So, I don't know about you guys, but I enjoy uh, a very specific sort of storyline that you see coming up in books and movies all the time, and it's sort of uh, the ragtag hero type of film or or story, right? You have the underdogs, you have the misfits, uh, you have sort of the weak and the lame. They're sort of the nerds of the situation, right, in the movies and in the story, but ultimately these nerds, these misfits, these underdogs, they rise to victory, and... uh, it's usually a bunch of people that look like this, right? You've got Harry Potter, or if you're a little bit older, maybe it's the A-Team, you know, or, or Luke Skywalker and the Rebels, right? The Farm Boy, you know, or the Magnificent Seven, if you're older still, you know, or you can go way back to, you know, the Seven Samurai. It's the same film. They just made it a Western. Um, but, uh, you know, so you have these underdogs and these people who are the misfits, and, uh, you know, they... Uh, they, they rise from obscurity to, to, ultimately, to ultimately win. And it's the same story. It's told by, by 10,000 different films. You know, when you think about all the different films and all the different stories you read, there's this, there's this one common theme through many of them, which is the unlovable, the dysfunctional, the ragtag sort of bunch of, of delinquents that ultimately rise to victory against overwhelming odds. And, and I love those movies. Like, I'm just waiting for that time when the, the tide turns and the underdogs win. You know, whether it's a sports team, um, you know, like the Maple Leafs or, uh, (laughs) yeah, yeah, 
it's a 40-year story. Um, but, uh, you know, or it's a military unit, you know, the, the, you know, the rat patrol or the, you know, just the misfits of the military, but they ultimately save the day. Or it's, you know, it's the nerds versus the jocks in the high school. Story after story. And there's a reason for this. There's a common theme that goes through these stories. And our storytellers and our writers tell the story over and over again um, because it's sort of built into us uh, to respond to this story. Now, the interesting thing is I was looking through the church photo directory, and I was starting to get the same similar sort of feeling as I get in those movies. Aren't we the underdogs? I mean, isn't the church supposed to be failing? Aren't all the books and modern-day prophets predicting doom and gloom on the North American church? And isn't the church sort of crumbling under its own weight and, you know, where there's infighting and there's arguing and there's nitpicking and nothing's done quite right and it's not serving me the way I want to be served and... You know, and then to top it all off, you know, within that sort of story of the church, that background sort of noise of the church, I look through the photo directory, and isn't it the case that the church is also made up of a bunch of misfits that basically reminds me of these guys here? You know? Like, I didn't want to actually put church directory photos up there. I thought that might be a little too personal. But you just imagine the photo directory from the church. Okay, picture that. Now picture these guys. Like, isn't that pretty much us when you look around, when you look through your high school yearbook or you look through the church directory? I saw that the other day on the Internet, and I thought, that looks like our church. That looks like the photo directory. That's it right there. It's a perfect picture of us. And the future of the church rests with guys like these, right? If that's the future of the church, if it's guys like this, if it's people like us that are going to take the church forward into the future, then where is it going to end up? That is a real mystery. But God has an answer. And uh, because I don't want to listen to what I have to say about the church, and I don't want to listen to what other people have to say about the church, I don't want to listen to what the experts supposedly have to say about the church, I want to listen to what God has to say about his church. So we are going to uh, look at to what his desire is for the church and what his plan and purpose is for the church and for its future. And to that end, we're going to look in Ephesians 3, and uh, it's verses uh, 8 to 13. And uh, there's Paul's talking a little bit before verses 8. We'll get to that. But verses 8 to 13 is where I'm going to focus, and we'll just open up God's Word and read today. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he had realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. So the background here, Paul is explaining how Christ died and is risen And uh, he did this to break down the wall of hostility, which is what he's talking about in the verses just previous to these. He's breaking down the wall of hostility between Gentiles and Jews, and he's brought them both to God, Gentiles and Jews, Gentiles being everybody who's not a Jew, uh, so all, most of us, I would assume, and uh, so all the nations of the world and the Jews, he's brought them together, and in bringing, or brought them both to God, and in so doing, brought them together. And then Paul goes on into an aside about his own ministry. This is the part that we read, where he's talking about his own ministry and the mission of the church. 
And he's realizing, the Apostle Paul is realizing that the people in Ephesus that are reading this letter probably don't know him. Uh, he planted the church in Ephesus. If you look in Acts chapter nine, uh, 19, sorry, uh, it gives you the story of how Paul planted the church in Ephesus, how he arrived there, and he preached in the synagogue for several months, and then he, there was house churches planted. He was there for two years, ultimately, and, it, and actually his, his ministry in Ephesus ended in a riot. And uh, because the church had grown to such an extent that it was actually influencing the economy of Ephesus. It was, it was overrunning this sort of port mercantile town and, and changing the economy to the point that the, the city was angry about the church and the effect that it was having by changing people's lives away from paganism. And so, so his ministry ended in a riot. If my ministry ends here in two years, I want it to be in a riot as well. I just figure that's a good way to go. Um, but so most of the church at this point, he's now in Rome, he's writing this letter, it could be as dec- years later, and he's writing this letter and they don't know him. And so Paul is explaining how he knows what he knows and why they should listen to him, why it's important, that, why Paul is preaching what he's preaching and, and why they should pay attention. And he's saying, essentially, God told me these things, God revealed these things. Uh, that he revealed a plan, a mystery that was hidden for the ages, and it's my job to show you the plan. And so he reveals what God told him. And he starts out by saying this, I am the very least of all the saints, and to him grace was given. And Paul is very humble in almost every instance. But he must know, and he does know, that the ministry that he has is a very blessed ministry. At the point that he's writing this letter, he has seen the results, the fruit of his missionary journey. He has seen what has transpired in terms of the churches that he has planted and, and, and leaving Barnabas and Timothy and Luke and others behind in his wake in ministry, leaders of the church. And so he is very humble, even though he knows that his ministry is blessed. But he is aware at the same time that that blessing, the fruit of his ministry, is purely by grace, that it is a gift given by God, and that the fact that he can have any impact at all is from God. Because Paul was this angry, violent, zealous persecutor of the church, if you remember, before he started out on his ministry and God intercepted his life. And God invaded that life and transformed Paul from an angry, violent, zealous persecutor into sort of an ornery, argumentative, zealous preacher. But he also softened Paul in a lot of ways, (laughs) even though he was sometimes ornery and argumentative and zealous. One of the things that God drew out of Paul is his love for the church and his soft heart for the people of the church. And so we must identify with Paul in this regard as members of the church because it's only by God's grace that we are able to do ministry at all. It's only by God's grace that he would use us to participate in the fruit that he wants to bear in the world. Paul recognizes that it's only by God's grace that he had his ministry. We in the church have to start at the same place that Paul starts, recognizing that it's only by God's grace, it's part of the mystery of what God has revealed, that he would actually use us to accomplish the things that he wants to accomplish in the world. And so, part of the mystery that Paul explains here in the verses, just before these, is the very fact that the church is made up of this vast diversity of nations and cultures that are by nature hostile to one another. He talks about how he brings Jews and God has brought Jews and Gentiles to God and he's united them in the church. And we have to identify with that as well. 
We have to identify with the humility of Paul that God would use us, but we also as a church have to identify with the reality that we are a family that's made up of many different families, that we are a culture that's made up of many different cultures, that there's this deep-seated appeal in many of these movie scripts that I talked about. You think about those movies, you think about those underdogs, those misfits, you know, the A-team or the, you know, the... The, the different group of people who are outcast by everybody else. They're not wanted by anybody else, but they band together and they ultimately rise to victory. And that is really the same identity that, that, that God is building into the church, that he has brought all these different nations together. He's brought all these different families and cultures together into one kingdom. And at the root of it, there is this appeal that all these movie scripts sort of tap into in our hearts. And they tug on a craving that God has placed into our hearts, a craving for unity amongst diversity that God built into us, a craving for a love that crosses over boundaries, and it crosses over and covers over the wounds and the hurts and the scars and all the things that make us the people that we are. All of our different histories, all of our, our different baggage that we bring, we have God has built into us this craving that we would be accepted despite all of those things and be unified into one family and see victory in that. And that's what God has done in the church. He's united nations formerly hostile to each other. He unites families formerly hostile to each other. He puts together a ragtag bunch of sort of delinquent misfits like us who at times are hostile with one another, (laughs) and he pulls them together. And we have this craving that says, I want to be loved in a way that people will over... like." oversee those differences. We'll look past the differences. We'll look past my culture. We'll look past my family. We'll look past the hurts and the wounds and the sin in my life and be accepted. And that's what we can identify with as Paul describes the church here, the mystery of the church, because that's what God has done. He's pulled these different nations together, these different people together in a way, mysterious way, to reveal his wisdom. And we know that if we're able to love others in spite of their faults and baggage and general craziness, then it must be possible for us to be loved despite our baggage and and general craziness. But then Paul goes into more detail to talk about what he's preaching. To preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, which is pretty much understandable, And to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God. Now this is an interesting sentence. Paul says he has two things to preach. The unsearchable riches of Christ, which I'm going to say is the gospel. I think we can all agree with that. So Paul says that he is called to preach the gospel. And you would expect that maybe Paul might even just stop right there. But he also says that he has another purpose in the mission that he was given by God. That he was to preach these unsearchable riches of Christ, but that also he had a second message. Something mysterious, a mystery hidden for the ages in God. So that second thing that is important to the mission of Paul has got to be pretty important, right? If it goes alongside the gospel, if it's something Paul felt was important enough for him to, or that God felt important enough to put into the ministry of Paul, what is it that he is preaching? What is this ministry that goes alongside the gospel of Christ? And he goes on to say that this mystery is through the church, the manifold wisdom of God, 
might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. That is cool. <laughs> that's, that's what stops me in my tracks when I'm reading Ephesians chapter 3. The second thing that Paul is revealing alongside the gospel itself is this plan that God has kept hidden for ages, that all the previous epochs in human history did not yet know, but God has now revealed in the New Testament that through the church will be made known the wisdom of God, not just to people, not just to nations, but to rulers and authorities in heavenly places. I don't think we feel the impact of that very often. I don't, right? I go through my life, even as a preacher and a pastor, I go through my life quite often going week after week, month after month, not remembering the impact or the profound reality, the magnitude of what I am a part of when I'm part of the church. I can get caught up with, you know, elders meetings and ministry team meetings and, you know, what needs to be done for this or what needs to be done for that. Or we could get caught up in uh, children's ministry or, or growth groups or all these things which are important. But miss out on this profound reality that God has in store for the church. Which is, is that it's through the church that the wisdom of God will be made known, not only to the nations, not only to the people in Halliburton and in Canada or in Ontario or in the world, but to rulers and authorities in heavenly places. That just doesn't land on me often, but I want it to land on me today and I want it to land on us today when we think about the church and what it is. So that's my hope this morning that we might think about this for the first time or I might remind you to think about it again and then as a church together we might start a pattern of thinking about it often and from thinking and meditating on that truth that we might start living in the reality of what is true. That the purpose of the church is to make known the wisdom of God not only to people, not only to the world but to powers and principalities in heavenly places. And the Apostle Peter actually makes a similar reference to this mystery in one of his letters to the church later on in his life as well. And when he's talking about the prophets who were writing in ages past, when he talks about those that were writing the Old Testament, he says it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that they have now been announced to you through those who have preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look, Peter says. So these things that are revealed to us now in the New Testament are things that God didn't even tell his angels yet. The angels have been wondering what's going on. You know, they see all this stuff that God is doing with Israel and, you know, with the the line of kings and putting them into captivity and taking them out of captivity and then not saying anything to them for 400 years. And then Jesus shows up and, you know, the church starts and the angels are looking at this going, what is going on? And it's revealed to us in the New Testament. The, the prophets and the scribes are writing these things down. And God was revealing things that even heavenly powers didn't understand. And that's what's hard for us to grasp. That God has a message for all the powers that be. He has a message for all the powers and principalities in the heavens. It's a mystery that I cannot fully comprehend. I don't even know what's going on when I say a statement like that. <laughs> I don't know what's going on in the heavens. I don't have this full picture of what is going on in the spiritual realm. What I know is that what we see physically isn't even half the story of what is going on. 
But what we know is that God is sending a message to the angels, to Satan, to all the powers, whatever they might be. He's sending a message to these powers about his wisdom and his greatness and his power. And that message is being sent by us, the church. That's what has to land on us today. That God has a plan for the church. So what does Paul say that means for us as believers in the church that he loves? Well, for one thing, the body of Christ is more significant in world history than any other group or organization or nation, I can tell you that. We think of the U.S. economy or the U.S. military, and we think, wow, that's a force in the world. It's nothing compared to the church. We think of the United Nations. We think of Al-Qaeda. You know, we think the terrorists are going to make all this big difference and something bad is going to happen. It's nothing compared to the church. You know, we think of maybe Bill Gates and Steve Jobs and, you know, the huge impact they've had on the world with technology and things. It's nothing compared to the church. You can think of the Commonwealth of the United Kingdom in its heyday with its naval power and all the different, you know, places that they settled and conquered, and it was nothing compared to the church. The Persian Empire, the Jade Empire, the Roman Empire, the Greek Empire, you can keep going back. doesn't matter. It's nothing compared to the church. First Peter says, All flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls away. But the word of the Lord, and I could put in there, the church of the Lord endures forever. Because everything we see in the world, all the power that we think we see, all the influence that we think we see, all the things that we think are going to shape or change our world, they're all a shadow. They're all just an illusion of power. They're just a temporary wind in the grass that passes by compared to the word of God and to the church of God, which exists forever. So be aware this morning that you, Christians, belong to a community a family that will never pass away. You belong to the most powerful social, political, and spiritual force in the universe, the church. The church influences everything at the most profound level. It's playing a game that none of the other organizations are playing because it's playing the game which is the salvation of the world. The other organizations, the other military powers, economic powers, political powers, they're not even in the same league as what the church is doing. And the church has the power to impact the world in a way that nothing else can impact it and has impacted the world in a way that nothing else impacts it. You think of the role that the church has played. You know, historically, we think in terms of things like slavery or today and throughout history versus poverty. You think of inner city work that churches do, the founding of hospitals, the, the issue of literacy and illiteracy and the founding of universities and schools so that people learn, of natural disaster relief, of refugees and illness relief. The role of the church through history and today is profoundly impacting the world for the cause of the gospel and for demonstrating the wisdom and the glory of God. It was interesting, a few years ago, it was Bono, the lead singer of the band U2. He was involved heavily when the AIDS crisis was really becoming known in Africa and and, an impact. And it was Bono who said that if the church does not respond to the crisis in Africa, then Africa is lost. And so here's this guy who's not a churchgoer, as far as I know. And 
he's got a pretty good sense of the political powers in the world. He's got a pretty good sense of how to mobilize, you know, influence and how to get things done. And Bono's analysis of, of Africa was, if the church doesn't do something, then we lose Africa. So Bono, who gets up on stage and dances and sings and stuff, had a better picture of the value of the church than I think most of us in the church understood. Like, that struck me. It's like Bono understands the church and understands the significant role that the church plays better than I do. And that's not right. I should at least know as much about the church as Bono, right? (laughs) Doesn't that make sense? So we just stop and we meditate on this. The reality that the church is at the forefront of all of these battles, that it's God's desire and it's a reality that the church is always going to be on the front line, that it's God's desire and reality. It is a mystery that he maintained hidden for the ages until the church was born in the New Testament, that he had a plan for all eternity. He had a plan for eternity past, that the church was going to arrive on this planet and he had a plan for that church that it would reveal his wisdom and it would reveal himself to the world through the church. And Paul goes on to say that this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. That this eternal purpose of the church that's realized, the word there literally, placed into, or the purpose that abides in Christ Jesus, and so therefore abides in the church. So we have to understand the significance of that truth. That what we really belong to here in terms of the church, the church universal, all the believers around the globe, the whole church, but also this church here in Lakeside, Lakeside Church, that what membership and attendance and tithing and serving and instructing and teaching and living out our life together means. We think that it's just getting together on Sunday and maybe on Wednesday and, you know, doing growth group. You know, we think it's just doing programs or ministries, but that when we do all those things together, that's God's plan for the world. That what happens in church on 52 Sundays and all the days in between is of local and national and global and cosmic significance. That what we're doing here is not unimportant. That what we're doing here is fundamentally and profoundly important. That it was on God's mind from the very beginning what we would be doing in the church. And so everything we do when we do it as the church should be saturated with a purposefulness. It should be saturated with sort of a foundational understanding that God breathed the purpose into his church. Every institution and every nation and community agency on the face of the earth is eventually going to be overcome by the forces of death and decay, except for one, the church. The church stands alone. It was founded on Christ. It's filled with his power. It's a bulwark against evil, against death and decay. It has a single mission. It's the same mission of Christ, to bring sons and daughters to glory. And so Paul goes on, and he finishes this little section here, and he says, so I ask you not to lose heart. So don't be discouraged by these guys. My last slide there. Don't be discouraged by those guys. Don't be discouraged when you look around the church and you see kind of goofy, weird people who are doing things not exactly the way you would do them. 
Don't be discouraged by short-sighted, broken, wounded people who make up God's church. Because this is the mystery that God is revealing. That God is choosing what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. Excuse me. That God chooses what is weak in the world to shame the strong. This is the mystery that God has in the church. That he's using broken and wounded and hurting and in reality sinful and rebellious people sometimes in his church. And he takes all those wounded and hurting and weird and crazy misfits, delinquents, rebels, and he puts them together, puts them on display, and the heavenly powers have witness of God's church, and they see the wisdom of God in what unfolds here. Satan, the demons, the angels, the powers, the principalities, again, stuff I don't even understand, right? There is a whole thing going on out there that we don't see with our physical eyes, but we know in our heart and we know spiritually is a battle going on. But God takes the misfits, puts them together in his church, puts his wisdom on display. So don't ever think that what we do in church isn't without purpose, that what we do in church is just some little insignificant thing that we do because, oh, you know, my parents did it and their grandparents did it. And maybe it's just a group of people that all sort of agree on the same thing and sort of have the same ethic. So we'll just get together and have a club. Just like Pastor Bud talked about last week. In so much as we understand the purpose, the mystery that God has hidden in the church for ages and has now revealed in so much as we understand that purpose, that we will put God's wisdom on display as we love one another and interact and function as the church, then we'll rise above just being a social club. We will live out the reality that God has breathed into this church, that he has an eternal purpose for it to put his wisdom on display. When we have access to the Spirit of Christ, we have access to the Spirit of Christ, We're tapped into this eternal purpose and desire of God for his church. So don't fix your eyes on the common stuff. Don't look at the ragtag team of weirdos (laughs) that make up the church. Because that team is going to win. God's church never fails. So that's why the title, Love the Church because it won't fail. Let's pray. Father God, we just give you thanks this morning for your word. We thank you that we can come and be the church, that you have gathered us in, lost sheep, hurt sheep, wounded sheep, that you have joined us together, nations and cultures and families formerly hostile to one another that you have filled your church with a love that sees past all of those things. And that as others see past our faults to love us, we see past others to their faults to see and love them. So, Father, I would pray, especially this Sunday, even as we come into communion now, that we would truly understand the significance of this communion, that by bringing us all to you, You have brought us all together. That we're one family, one culture, one kingdom, one nation. Your kingdom. Father, just bless our communion time together with you. In Christ's name, amen. 
So we did happen to hit a communion Sunday, which is great. And uh, I'm told that we are doing communion by distribution this morning, and so I think elders perhaps will be coming forward to serve.